Hello and welcome to episode 55 of Link to the Cast, your weekly dose of video games and nerd culture ephemera. On the show this week, people say the Bible is the greatest story ever told, those people have never seen John Wick. Mark jams some discs and I actually have a good Telltale Games experience to talk about. Is greatness on the horizon? The Zero Dawn reviews are in. A whole bunch of Switch news ahead of release next week. And our book club this week is a quest in maddening simplicity as we talk Tetris and the excellent documentary Ecstasy of Order, The Tetris Masters. Let's get this shit show on the road. This is Link to the Cast. I am your party host, Dave Ryan, joined as I am each and every week on the couch beside me by the platforming prodigy that is Mark Robinson. Mark, how are you? Just talk to me about John Wick 2. <sighs> Chats. Two. We're just going to jump right just, in. I, I, just jump right in. Now, I, I'm not really sure it's a film that you need to give me a spoiler warning for or to try and dance around spoilers, because <sighs> no. I kind of have a, a, a base understanding what the plot will probably be which is yeah. there'll be headshots there'll yeah. be Ian McShane being fantastic yeah. and it'll come together in a nice little package yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, yeah I saw John Wick chapter 2 this week and um, to start it off there are two times in my life this is the way I will be delineating my life in, in future um, the time before I saw this film and the better time <laughs> when I now have this film in my head uh huh um, I suppose technically light spoiler. Like I'm not going to get into it. I'm going to. I, I might spoil a little bit of what happens in the first one, even though, like you said, there's really no plot to these movies. That's not the point. Um. So John Wick One, for those of you who don't know, was this action movie that came out a couple of years ago, starring uh, Keanu Reeves. And really came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. It was this. It like it, it's one of those kind of. B movies that has an like a proper uh, A tier movie sheen to it mm-hmm. yep. because it is definitely if this was the seventies this would have been like in the the kind of one half of a grindhouse double feature. Yep, John Wick. So <laughs> it's funny. I'll sum up the plot to John Wick in a couple of sentences here um, because our friend Zig was asking about the plot of John Wick one because he was going to see the second one having not seen the first one. <laughs> Basically, what an, what an interesting pro- uh, position to be in. Basically, Keanu Reeves is a hitman who has gotten out of the business uh, when he fell in love with a woman. That woman then uh, got some sort of degenerative disease, we assume cancer, and dies. But right before she dies, she bought John Wick, Keanu Reeves, a puppy um, to keep him company because, you know, he, he's on his own now. And because dogs are so good. Yeah, and because dogs are so good. Um, at the start of the movie, these guys, uh, one of them being um, Alfie Allen, <laughs> Lily yeah. Allen's brother, yeah, and star of Game of Thrones, <laughs> um, come into his house, break into his house, they steal his car and they kill the dog, um, which leads to the the amazingly silly line in the first trailer that grabbed everyone's attention, which was, that dog was a final gift from my dying wife, uh, which is real, like, you know... <laughs> I don't have nothing and they took that too kind of line and uh, Ken Reeves is understandably upset about this and then spends the next 90 minutes killing pretty much everybody that they all those people that broke into his house have ever met besides Kevin Nash besides Kevin Nash who he tells to take the night off (laughs) Mr. Vick (laughs) Um, it was awesome I I got it on Blu-ray 
because I had heard of a bunch of people I follow on Twitter. I'd heard this was a fantastic movie. So as soon as it came out on Blu-ray, I ordered it, got it sent here. Myself and Brian sat down, watched it. And Dan and I can't remember who else was outside with him could hear us howling with laughter the whole time. It's not a funny movie, but it is ridiculous. It's so good that I had two eight-hour plane journeys and proceeded to watch it four times. Yeah, he... There are so many... I call it headshots the movie because the amount of people Keanu Reeves shoots in the head in this film is preposterous. Um, He is in peril in that movie for about a cumulative 40 seconds, maybe. There is no point at which you think he is any danger besides that. Um, he uh, he perfects this this kind of because Keanu Reeves is a big martial arts guy and he talked a lot in the build up I mean, to this film he knows kung fu about well this is the thing he talked about how he has now developed gun fu uh, <laughs> which is him there are points in the film where it looks like he is punching people with the gun so he's going in for a punch and shooting them as the gun makes contact with them yep it's really cool it's a really really cool action movie uh, like proper dumb action movie um, so it got a sequel. Um, oh, the other thing that's really cool about the original one is that um, it, it, like, I love when movies intersect with something else that's going on entirely in the background that also seems like it would be an interesting movie. Uh, and in John Wick 1, it was this hotel called the Continental, mm-hmm. which is a hotel where assassins stay, uh, hitmen stay. And um, John Wick, who is pretty much widely recognised as the biggest badass of them all. Um, he is, uh, they, they describe at one point in the first film as the guy, he's not the boogeyman, he's the guy you get to kill the boogeyman. Is it Baba Yushka? Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga, that's yeah. it, yeah. The boogeyman. Yeah. And, um, but there's this hotel where they all stay question. and it's run by Ian McShane and Lance Reddick is this weird idiosyncratic bellhop. Uh and it's just a place where the hitmen come and they're not allowed. No business can be conducted on continental premises. So no uh, killing or violence or anything like that. Everybody has safe harbour and safe passage and safe room and board inside in this hotel. Anyway, John Wick 1 ends. Um, it doesn't necessarily leave the door open for the sequel, but sequel it does do. Uh, so John Wick Chapter 2 is... So the first one was mainly the thing he kept repeating was, you know, they killed his dog. So he was going to kill all of them. Um, This movie starts pretty much, it feels like, about 20 minutes after the first one ended. Excellent. Fantastic. Um, With him now with the unfinished business of getting the car back. (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of an awesome little, you know, and now we continue sort of thing. But the the whole film isn't about that. Um, he kind of that gets resolved fairly early on and not to spoil what happens in the film but a guy from his past shows up and drags him back in again and he is compelled to re-enter this world and things get phenomenally ridiculous from there I have two questions for you okay um one does it do a uh is kind of the concept of the film other than being a john wick john wick film does it try to expand more on the universe that is created in the original john wick which i feel it mistakenly creates like it wasn't intentionally trying to do that so it kind of does because there is um allusions to and it does it kind of by the drip feed that does in the first one where the first thing you find out is that that continental hotel isn't the only one it's a franchise yeah yeah so you've seen from the anyone who's seen the trailer or seen the press shots will know that there is a part of this film that takes place in Rome and um John Wick goes to the Continental Hotel in Rome which has 
hilariously uh, a woman as the equivalent to Lance Reddick as the bellhop and uh, a, a guy who is a glorious Italian version of Ian McShane as the manager. Um, so it expands on that. Then it also sort of expands even further because um, there are allusions towards the hierarchy of people who run um, not only the hotels, but the entire kind of maybe world of contract killing. Mm-hmm. They're the kind of mysterious shadowy crime bosses behind it all who are pulling the strings possibly leading into a John Wick 3 which I very much you will see this film is uh, Keanu I, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that there is going to be a John Wick 3 because yeah. Keanu Reeves said there was going to be a John Wick yeah, 2 and 3 after the first one that was already well, yeah intention. Um, so the film is fantastic it, it like don't go into this expecting um <laughs> a contemplative look, uh, an introspective look on humanity or no, the, no. the the futility of violence or anything like that. It is just, it, it's dumb, hilarious action. The other question I was going to say, does it lose anything by being a sequel to the original John Wick? Like, the when you go into a film like John Wick, uh, like you go into a film like The Room, you know, mm. something that you just, you're not expecting, and um, does it lose anything... Because I imagine yeah. it's doing the same thing as the first. Yeah, like it does, but it does it bigger and not in a way where it's... There's a distinct difference between when you when a sequel is the same but bigger and when it's the same but more. Because yeah, when yeah. it's the same but more, then you're not really changing anything and that's the kind of... The video game parallels, like you know, we always say Gears of Four is Gears of War Four sure. is Gears of yeah. More. So it's you know it's not great, but it's you know it's more of what we liked. This makes things bigger. Um, this fe- this felt like a two hour long Hitman map, um, in the best possible way. Um, there was a good five minute stretch, um, in Rome where I was laughing uncontrollably. Good. Um. At the ridiculousness of it all, and I meant to, because the the thing about John Wick as well is that there's definitely the vibe off those two films that they know what they're doing. Sure. It's not, they're not being po-faced about it. They know this is fucking ludicrous. There is a self-awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Which, and- I think, the, the thing that comes across is because... For the longest time, I feel with Keanu Reeves, there's there's been a lack of self awareness, mainly yeah. in the yeah. the Matrix trilogy. Oh, he is definitely at some point um, after those films became very self aware. I think he's accepted and that Keanu he Reeves, is in fact Keanu, Keanu Reeves. Reeves is always great when he is cast as a Keanu Reeves type. Mm. Um, to me, his greatest roles so John Wick, obviously, uh, Neo. He's great as Neo. The writing in the second and <laughs> third films are terrible, but the, he is still great as Neo. The, the general philosophy. Yeah, he's um, still great as this weird kind of if a nerd became Superman yeah. story. Because you forget that he is just this kind of loser hacker who works in an office sure, and yeah. then becomes imbued with basically Jesus powers. Mm. Um, uh, his other great roles, I love A Scanner Darkly, the adaptation mm-hmm. of the sure, Phil K. Yep. Dick book. Um, he's brilliant in that and I think it's often maligned but I think as a standalone film it's actually decent Constantine oh I fucking I love Constantine it's a, a complete bastardization of the comics I've never read the comics so I don't care the comics are so much better I'm sure they are but first, oh, I think the like, film's great for starters the thing the comic book fans <laughs> really didn't care for was that um, uh, it was set in LA and, and uh, John Constantine was played by Keanu Reeves whereas John Constantine is blonde and is kind of part from 
kind of Liverpool, Newcastle, apart from London. So he has a weird mishmash of English accents. <laughs> Very much not Keanu Reeves. But he's good in that. Um, this is his other great role of his career. Oh, Bill and Ted. He's great yeah, sure. Well. Um, but yeah, this is... John Wick 2 is fucking brilliant. It's hysterically funny uh, in all the right ways. And it has one of my favourite cameos of the year. I'm not going to spoil what he does. Please but, don't. Um, it's not a big kind of, oh my God, this guy's in the film. But uh, Peter Serafinowicz is in the film for a hot second okay and he's unbelievable well because he is <laughs> he always. is he, him and Keanu Reeves have a bit of a back and forth that's fantastic All right. and honestly yes as well you've seen in the trailer Lawrence Fishburne is in this film yep, yep. and you do get the <laughs> from the reunion of Neo and Morpheus <laughs> in the film and uh, Larry Fishburne let me tell you that man will chew some scenery if you want him to <laughs> uh, yeah absolutely fantastic film probably might go and see that on Sunday yeah did I talk about, I did, uh, yeah I did talk about Lego Batman which I've seen as well yeah, we and I've also yeah. seen Sing oh you've seen Sing now yeah I, I enjoyed Sing yeah. uh, I really enjoyed the um, the the before we move on the, the one I really enjoyed that I didn't hear anybody talk about were like the, the J-pop uh... <laughs> the little J-pop foxes yeah yeah brilliant <laughs> every time yeah they were, kind of, they were like my version of uh, The Secret Life of Pets when I saw Secret Life of Pets like it's good but the only time I was laughing out loud to the point of nearly tears was every time the rabbit talked about Ricky. <laughs> it's like, oh, rest in peace, Ricky. <laughs> like every time they called back to that joke, yeah, the, I died. The the foxes were good. My last impression is just Gunther. Yeah, Gunther is yeah. great. Gunther is great. But the, yeah, the, yeah, just, the, just... the, the J-pop foxes are red pandas or shivas, whichever they're supposed to be. Like it's somewhere in somewhere like a Venn diagram of yeah. all three of those. Uh, yeah, they're they great. are fantastic. A great kind of characters. Character <laughs> when he tries to read the Japanese dictionary, yeah. they just slap him in the face. <laughs> it's great. Anyway, let's get on to video games. Playing this week. Hey, check it out! I learned the baseline from Final Fantasy Two. Scott, you are the salt of the earth. Well, thanks. I meant scum of the earth. Thanks. Mark, you've been flipping some hot discs. Yeah, well, so I saw last Friday you did a stream, I think, of Disc Jam. Was it last Friday? Mark is doing some really peculiar um, hand gestures in this. Come pointing in your direction. Shapes. So you can tell me. No, was it last Friday or Saturday you did a stream? Um, I think it was Saturday. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so the beta is out for Disc Jam. No, which... it wasn't. It was Sunday. Oh, the, the it was Sunday because you still weren't home. I had been away for the weekend, and I came okay. back and downloaded it. But the the disc, uh, the beta for Disc Jam is out uh, by High Horse Entertainment. Now we heard about this. Oh, when was this? Was this E three? Windjammers? No, uh, Disc Jam. Because I know I've heard about this for a while. I've heard of, there's a couple of these ostensibly Windjammers clones that have been going around. I couldn't tell you for sure. Disc Jam is the one I've heard of. This is the one I know I've definitely heard of. I can't remember exactly where the announcement for it was. Uh, but yeah, basically it the, is... The first I heard of it was when... And the reason I downloaded it was because I was watching Unprofessional Friday on Giant Bomb. And they just cracked it out. I didn't no, even know. As you do. It was Fair enough. Um, but yeah, it's uh, you can sign up for it. Go to highhorseentertainment.com. Uh, you can sign up for the beta. Yeah, if you retweet their post about the beta and follow their Twitter account, they'll send you a code via... Mm. They'll slide into your DMs. Yeah, they've been very active uh, about that. Uh, which, mm. you know, as they should be. Um, so we're playing the PS4 version. I think it's on Steam as yes. well. Yes, yes. 
Um, and so yeah, it's it's a kind of 3D rendition of Windjammers. If you've never played Windjammers, Windjammers is a uh, 2D retro art style top down top down frisbee rendition of Pong, uh, but slightly my slightly more high octane. Um, it, yeah, it's like Street Fighter meets Pong. How about that? And so this is a, a 3D version where the it goes from the view of like a virtual tennis game or, or any kind of tennis game where uh, you are looking at your opponent from across the court. And it doesn't have, I would say, the complete... Now, you haven't played Windjammers, have you? Uh, no, I have seen a lot of Windjammers. Yeah. So I've, I've, I've never had my chance. To, I, I don't own a Neo Geo, funnily enough. Yeah, well, we, we have two arcade cabinets in the office, and uh, they both have about 600 ROMs on them, and on there is Windjammers. Uh, it doesn't have... I would say the the complete kind of snappiness and fluidness of Windjammers, but it's it, it's, it's yeah pretty it won't close. do because it's not the arcade. No, but it's not bad. You know, yeah. I I think um, if Windjammers wasn't a thing that was coming, you know, I think this well, is a perfectly I, I, serviceable I replacement. Like if there had been like an analog to like an arcade era analog to Rocket League, I'd say the same thing would have taken place oh uh, sure there's a certain because of the kind of the weightiness and the amount that goes into the way games are designed nowadays it would be very strange for them to have that kind of arcadey quickness it, it it's a, it's all it's a little jarring yeah um, but i mean by no means uh does it feel uh, heavy or weighty or no, no. wrong just just like marginally yeah. more than um, and obviously you got to take into account as well that this is an online game mm-hmm. and, um, and the beta thereof yeah, oh yeah um but i think the the net code they've got in for it seems to be working um i've had very few issues very few issues i've had one issue um other than just trying to get into games mm-hmm. which um is going to be the case with betas but you can change the ping from 100 150 uh, down to 50 and then just yeah that's to... cool giving you the control over that yeah uh, i think that that's a just not a nice feature um and it's available in most places because there was a europe server a north american server um i would like it if it would give you the option to just kind of just throw open the server like globally instead of having to pick kind of specifically um but that's just kind of a, a rocket league feature uh, that i'm thinking about mm. um but yeah i i think it's 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 pretty cool. Like, I, it's definitely a game that I think I would. Very uh, Moorish. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, uh, it's easy to get into a match as well. So it's it, and they're very quick matches. Mm-hmm. Um, gone up to fifty points. So yeah. you can just sit in and in about five minutes your game is over, and then reload back in in about thirty seconds. Less if the person is willing to rematch with you. Uh, it has that kind of quick replayability uh, of Rocket League that also. Um, I love when a game's multiplayer is so easy and the actual gameplay is so fun that even if you get tonked in a match, you still want to play another one because it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, it's got the thing with uh, like a Mario Tennis game where once you get a rally going and because of the the nature of the types of throws that you can do, because it, it retains the same control scheme as uh, Windjammers. So you have like your standard throw and you have a lob as well. But it, a lot of it comes into timing, you know, as the fr- frisbee or the disc gets thrown to you, if you, like, grab it at the right time and throw it back, you can get, like, a charge off of that and the, the disc goes back further. And if they do the same thing, you know, the, the process kind of speeds up and, you know, you get into a kind of a, a rhythm action kind of trance um, 
and that gets really really addictive um i'm having difficulty getting the the kind of power shots to work and it's a bit annoying that there's there's certainly it's one of those times where you 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 will have to it'll only come through playing it because you, you you'll need to time the animation you know to know exactly when to smash it yeah it's it's tough it's hard to get outside of the training scenario where they're feeding the ball or the disc to you yeah straight on and i feel that uh the lob isn't doesn't feel like a kind of necessary mechanic um oh i don't know about that because uh, it's it some of the some of the most satisfying scores i've had are when i've been able to when someone is not doing what they should do like if they were playing tennis where they should keep to the middle so that they can get everywhere easily enough so someone banks it way off to the left you can just dump it with a lob up to the near right hand side the furthest part away from them well i i don't don't mean that in that i don't think it should be there because it should be there but i don't think it's working as well as it should be and again i'm kind of doing a wind jammers comparison here so yeah for me and this is from the like me being the control who hasn't played Windjammers. I to me it's been perfectly fine. I haven't mm. had a problem with it. Um, but it's, it's a matter of perspective. I yeah, suppose. yeah. yeah. Uh, but it, you know, I think doubles is a little bit too chaotic. <laughs> I feel. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm preferring to stick to singles, and I don't know how they'd go about doing local cart for this. If they would just do a split screen. Local co-op. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Local multiplayer. Local multiplayer. Yeah, probably split screen. Or switch the Windjammers top down. Either that... Because a lot of sports games, you can reorient... Like, with FIFA, you can reorientate the camera to do mm. top down or lengthwise or anything like that. I, I feel that they would have to change certain aspects of the controls. I think... Oh, you just oh, uh... have to keep pointing it in the direction you want them to go. Uh, I don't know. I... It works with every other sports game in the world. I don't know. I but there's something pure about like these kinds of games where I feel something is taken away by changing the camera angle. Um, I think maybe they could go for the the tennis uh, perspective of having like just maybe slightly raise the camera angle so you can see kind of more of the other maybe. side of the court. Um, I don't know. I think it's good though. I think it's yeah, very good. Yeah. It's a really, really good game. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that that would be the one thing, and maybe some sort of um, like punch out style bunch of characters, it, like some sort of de facto single player mode, where you as a good way to train you to be really good at the game outside of just a training mode, where you get introduced to all the different characters in the game by working your way past all of them in some sort of tournament uh, mode. Yeah. That would be nice. Those would be the, the, the probably the the only two things I could think of. But you know what? Even even if they kept it in its purest form as it is, I would still play the fuck out of it. Yeah, I, like I, it would need to be a good price point if it had if it only had the like it wouldn't want to be too expensive. If it no, no, have, no, 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 um, those things. But I I'm pretty sure at, at the very least. Um, they have been hinting on Twitter. I don't know if they've outright said it. Or I've missed it if they have. Um, that the local, uh, or not, not the local, mo- yeah, local multiplayer is in the, the finished game. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. There's obviously stuff they have to strip out to that you're not getting a free. Oh, cool. So full I mean, play through the game. You know, we'll be getting global. all the betas we need for it. Gets the word out, which it has because a lot of people are talking about it. Um, and also the netcode is being thoroughly tested in North America and Europe. Yeah, I so. think two things you'll probably see 
uh, one is, is global rankings. But I think something they should also include is a uh, round by round um, uh, instant replay. Because like if you have like a really good rally, instead of having to go into the uh, uh, share feature afterwards to do it, like having kind of them individually saved and then deleted at the, the end of the game or whatever. Yeah, um, games like, um, again, FIFA, but WWE games do that as well, mm. where significant moments in a match um, get put into kind of a bullet point list of highlights to be replayed at the end, and you can just hit pop a button to save those then. Yeah, yeah. Um, if they had a little yeah. feature like that, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, not necessary, but cool. No, not necessary, yeah, Nice cool. bell or whistle to yeah, sure. add on to it, that's for sure. Um. I finished Resident Evil 7 this week. And as I said on Twitter, I think my 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 hot take for this is that I think for me personally, and this is speaking as myself, Dave Ryan horror fan and not saying objectively this is the truth and everybody must agree with it. But I think in my humble opinion that it is the best Resident Evil game ever made. And it's a hot take indeed. Um, it is really interesting that this franchise moves in trilogies, um, the core games for sure. So the first three Resident Evil games are, to me, Japanese renditions of American horror movies, um, because they're kind of askew. You know, there's like the dialogue in particular is very mm-hmm. much askew, um, and. It focuses heavily on because what you would if you were a Japanese observer of American horror films you would be forgiven for assuming that it is largely based on jump scares which a lot of the original Resident Evil games are based on jump scares visceral jump scares it was always the jump scare game whereas the Silent Hill series was always the thinky horror game um, well, well, it got I... inside your head whereas Resident Evil was the <gasps> chill uh, Silent Hill was always the creepier and more... Um, the psychological horror. Yeah, the more uh, I need to call my therapist, let's pause the game. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then the second trilogy of uh, Resident Evil games, 4, 5, and 6... Action horror are the act ...are the over-the-shoulder action games um, that started off fantastically with Resident Evil 4, which a lot of people before now would argue is the best in the series, that or maybe 2. Um, depending on... There are people who... There are a lot a of people between one and two. There are a lot of people who say that the remastered version of one is, is... it's pretty great. Yeah. I have it. Um, so those action ones fell off a cliff very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, Resident Evil Five has its fans. Uh, Resident Evil Six does not. Uh, and to be fair, I will always vouch for a game that lets you fire a rocket into a volcano. Mm. But now we have uh, Resident Evil Seven, which is a return to form for the series. Is kind of. Uh, not to spoil everything, but is kind of a um, soft reboot of the whole series. Mm-hmm. Um, like it doesn't. No, I'm not going to go any further. I'm just going to say soft reboot. <laughs> There's not a huge amount of it. All I will say is that it it exists in the same universe as all the. There's not a lot that connects. If you play through most of the game, you would think, "What the fuck? Have they just abandoned the entire continuity of Resident Evil?" I will say they have not, um, but what I will say is that I think they're reinventing the wheel here. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't even say so much that they're reinventing yes, the wheel. What they're doing is they're taking Resident Evil and they're um, modifying and adapting it to kind of the current 
conventions of how horror is represented. Sort of. To a degree. With the the person who um is, who is the game's main antagonist by the end uh, and that person's perceived importance to the overall story in the world mm-hmm. I'm really trying to dance around <laughs> stuff here now um, what I have taken from it is that it is retconning an origin point for the series well I, I mean kind of reinvention in terms of the actual like mechanical side of the game in terms of storyline lore Resident Evil mm. um, I, I haven't looked into it enough to be able to yeah. have a debate or discussion with you on that but in terms mm. of the actual just the way those games play they definitely feel like a, a kind of reaction to ah oh, this is how horror games are at the moment we need to get more with the yeah. times it handles like um combat and and things like that handle like somewhere halfway between pt which has no combat but has a very weighty oppressive tone to it mm. and dying light which has um the oppressive tone as well but there is combat and something that very much comes to the fore in Resident Evil that is prominent in Dying Light is the idea that sometimes it's better to run away. Yeah. Um, ammo uh, and resource scarcity is a real issue in Resident Evil 7 that makes the game challenging. Not like frustrating, but challenging for sure. Um, the game also is really good at... Um, when you look back on it, when you've done it, and you start splitting it into chapters... Each segment of the game has pretty much something that is going to wig out somebody who is scared by something in horror. Mm. Um, it's got pretty much any genre of horror you want in there. Um, there are homages to slasher movies. There are homages to psychological horror like um, P.T. You can't walk through that corridor in the baker's house and not think of P.T., um there is definitely body horror going on in there there is claustrophobia there is um kind of like gross creepy stuff with insects there is even a fucking uh sort of a clown thing going on in there Uh, very briefly very briefly um yeah it's it's a fucking incredible game it if i will say this right now if this is not on the shortlist for our game of the year this year we are looking at a banner year for video games. Well, the one thing I want to bring up that I've seen from uh, maybe a majority of people that have reviewed the game is that they think it's a great game. Mm-hmm. They do think that the ending, either they say it kind of slides off from the first sort of four to five hours of the game in the introduction, or um, they say that it kind of loses focus. Um... I think, um, and this is just just speaking as a horror fan uh, again, uh, I think what a lot of people, and I have read some reviews that have said same, uh, my evaluation of that is that they are getting confused between um, a loss of focus and the way the story is segmented. So... If you take that opening segment of the game with um, the, the figure who we will uh, refer to as Daddy, hmm. um, 
if, if you take that segment and then contrast it with the, the end segment of the game, which I will loosely describe as the salt mines, it looks very different. It looked like, where the fuck? They got lost somewhere on the way here because this feels like an entirely different thing. But what I think the game does, like I said, because it has, because each segment feels like a different kind of horror film and those videotapes also feel like vignettes from different horror films again. Yeah. Um, I think people are losing focus. The narrative is still there and it's still strong and they don't lose focus of that core narrative the whole time along. But I think people are getting distracted by tonal shifts that aren't, they aren't jarring because it's not like it's suddenly going from say um, drama to rom-com, that kind of a jarring shift. It it's just moving between different homages and different ways of scaring people, um, and I, I can understand why that might not be for everybody, but uh, for me, it's absolutely brilliant. It it doesn't it doesn't stick around it, it it doesn't stick around with one way of scaring you for so long that you become bored and it becomes predictable. Mm-hmm. It keeps you guessing. So that oppressive stuff at the start that everybody has seen watching playthroughs with Daddy and all that and that corridor uh, in what is called the guest house. The game doesn't stay like that the whole time. Um, And I thought it would. If you listen back to me talking about this game very early on, um, I thought it was going to be like Nemesis where there is just this same figure is pursuing you throughout the whole fucking game. That's what I thought was happening there. Yeah. But that isn't what happens. Because after a few hours, if that was constantly happening all the time, it would get tedious. So every time, and it's pretty much at the point where, oh, if, I, if, I, if this fucking happens again, I'm going to get annoyed. Then it pivots into something else. Um, so I think it's to the game's benefit, personally. Um, that's for me. Uh, I had another game here, but I'm going to talk about it next week. Because we are run late already. I am going to go straight into the news. News on the mark! First things first in the news this week, the reviews are in for Horizon Zero Dawn, which is a new game from Guerrilla Games. It's the first real um, first-party exclusive game of the year, the first tentpole release of the year, because I think we just talked about Resident Evil, but I think Resident Evil kind of came out and it was a surprise that it was that good. Um, Whereas this, the hype train has been rolling for some time on Horizon, Mark, would you agree? it's been two years i think since we first saw it yeah it has but i feel actually like for me personally that i've not at any point proper proper kind of jumped into the hype train Mm. i've kind of been on the side sort of watching from afar Mm. um but i know you've been excited for it yeah as a guy who's like i'm i like fire cry games and i also uh am a fan of guerrilla games now a couple of those kill zone games were real missteps Mm. But also, a couple of them were really, really good. So, the first Killzone on PS2, I adored. Uh, Killzone 3 on PS3, I really liked. And Killzone Shadowfall, the launch game for PS4, I think was the sneaky best game of the launch lineup that wasn't called Resogun for PS4. Um, What a pleasant surprise then, because I have been tentatively excited for this. But a game that was looking to be this big and this audacious we've seen it happen before where shit goes awry no man's guy mm. um so i was tentatively excited about this so how pleasant it was when i went online and saw the embargo had dropped and it not universal 
but the overwhelming majority of reviews for this game are massively positive. So we're talking, uh, just looking at, it's rocking a Metacritic score at the moment of 88. Is it 88? It is 88. So it's got 100 from Jewel Shockers. Uh, it's got five stars from Giant Bomb. Yep, I saw Jeff give it, gave it the old five. Yeah, it's got, uh, it's got a couple of mixed reviews down in the, like, the kind of you know 60s or I've the, seen the uh, Eurogamer gave it a, a bit of a mixed review uh, Austin Walker said that he likes the game but does think it has some flaws yeah uh, the, the constant thing that I'm seeing is one it's obviously a very nice looking game yeah it's apparently the best looking game on consoles that's to date that's a pretty strong shout because yeah. we've got some good stuff out there um, the, some of the character work is really good um, the the main protagonists there's some really kind of core strong core themes going on yeah people weren't expecting that the story is actually really good yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I, th- I think the main uh, issues I've been hearing is just that some of the gameplay and this is kind of an inherent issue that you're going to get with big open world style games yeah. is that just either there's just a lot of meandering at points or there's just a lot of kind of nothing to do yeah. uh, which is going to kind of happen because yeah. developers need to try and expand it, these it, games it's, out and... it's very rare that you'll come across an open world game that keeps everything fresh all the time yeah uh, the only the only game I can think of where it didn't that didn't have some sort of repetitive side quest chain would be something like the witcher 3 mm. um which every single side quest somehow i boggles my mind to this day how every single side quest in that game with the exception of gwent because fuck gwent uh, every single side quest feels unique in its own way and feels like an interesting bit of story being told um but yeah so if you're buying into it's an open world game so there are going to be some side quests or some kind of foraging stuff that feels a bit repetitive for a while um, it seems that Horizon Zero Dawn um, is quite a good one. Um, I am very much looking forward to picking this game up. It's out um, March 1st, so by the podcast next week I'll have played it. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit, anyway. Yeah. Um, so looking forward to that one. Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. Jim Sterling today officially announced... Uh, that he was victorious. The long-standing lawsuit with Digital Homicide has been thrown out before it even gets to court, uh, as the the Ramin brothers behind Digital Homicide uh, agreed in after conversations with Jim Sterling's lawyer that they were going to drop the lawsuit. Uh, what it seems like is um, this was hurtling, and it's been going on for nearly two years. Now. It's been for a while. Um, it was her, so for those of you who don't know, let's bring it right back. Digital Homicide are um, developers, if you could use that term, <laughs> who were guilty of what Jim Sterling. So Jim Sterling is a, a game critic and consumer advocate uh, who is fully independently financed through Patreon, uh, has an excellent show every week called The Jim Quisition on YouTube. And he kind of is a gaming industry watchdog as well as a game critic. He will call out shady practices across games. And one of the things he frequently calls out is what is called an asset flip, which is when developers uh, go to an asset store in the case of Digital Homicide, I believe it was the Unity asset store. It's always Unity. And they buy a bunch of pre-made assets that run in the Unity engine and just cobble those together and call it a game and then put it through Steam Greenlight and try to get people's money. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jim Sterling targeted Digital Homicide as being a particularly egregious violator of the asset flip. And um, they 
went to war with Jim Sterling. So they issued copyright strikes on this channel to try and get the videos down. That didn't work because copyright strikes never fucking work. Um, then they announced their intention to sue Jim Sterling for $10 million. Which then turned into $15 million. Uh, in lost earnings. Yeah. Um, but what seems to have happened as this has gotten on, um, there is a particular, I urge anybody to go out and listen to it is the most awkward and cringy thing in the world and i've listened to it several times um the interview between one of the romine brothers and jim sterling it's fucking incredible <laughs> um in which the romine in question i think is james i'm not sure uh tries to dox jim sterling in the middle of it but accidentally doxes the wrong person, just a different guy with the same actual name, because Jim Sterling isn't Jim Sterling's actual name. Yeah, indeed. Um, uh, it's just, it's a horror show. But um, Jim announced today that his lawyer met with the Ramines and, in so many words, explained to them why this was going to massively blow up in their faces if it went to court. They agreed to drop the suit. So Jim is now free of this lawsuit that's been dogging him for so long. The only thing that's sad and is kind of a a bit of a rough uh, kind of precedent to set going forward for things like this happening is that because it was... Um, the, the case was technically dismissed with prejudices, the, the term that's given to it, uh, both sides are responsible for their own legal cost. Yeah. Whereas if you go to trial, um, the person who loses the suit has to pay the legal cost for both sides mm-hmm. as they are found to be the guilty party. Um, so because of this now, even though Jim Sterling was in the right, he has to pay a massive financial penalty for standing up for what was right. As he himself points out in his statement and in a lot of things he has said, he is lucky enough that he's in a position where his community backs him enough that he has plenty of money to throw a lawyer at something like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. But it's still something that, you know, if this were to have happened with a smaller YouTuber that doesn't have the community to rally around them like this, um, it, it sets a dangerous kind of precedent well, for this you, kind of thing. I mean, the thing is, is um, inherently by his position... And because of his his kind of role within the gaming community, like he is going to find himself more likely in this position than a, a smaller YouTuber. Well, you um, say now, that. I, now, the same I'm company. not saying I'm not saying by any means that this is the case and will remain like that. Yeah. Um, but yes, you will get idiots well, like the only reason homicide. that that the only reason that that statement isn't completely contradicted by Digital Homicide themselves is Digital Homicide did try. To do a similar lawsuit with hundreds of individual people. Well, yes. <laughs> um, but they couldn't afford both lawsuits and reckon they stood a better chance in the lawsuit with Jim Sterling. Yeah. So they had both lawsuits gone on, the same like the same situation would have the class action lawsuit would have. Uh, I wonder. Now I'm no expert in law by any means, but I wonder if they hadn't been so phenomenally stupid to put a price tag of fifteen million and had gone for say one million. No, because. Um, the whole the the whole case hinged on whether he was uh, defaming them and causing them to lose earnings but uh, there was literally no point during anything that was being brought up as part of evidence in the case where he said anything incorrect <laughs> um, I suppose with that in his role as consumer advocate uh, and then on top of that 
they couldn't uh, do they couldn't touch him for using their video games as part of his videos because it all comes under fair use. Mm. So there was no there was literally no there was not a fucking hope in hell. I imagine that there that just hypothetically I imagine that the goal was hoping that Jim would run out of money first. Yeah. And he would throw in the lawsuit and then they would get some money. That that is my assumption because a lot of people will do that where they'll file frivolous lawsuits and hope that they're given hush money just to make it go away rather mm. than go through the lengthy procedure these people obviously don't know Jim fucking Sterling's son but uh, good to see anyway that Jim is free of that he is uh, an excellent advocate for the uh, video game consumer uh, go check his stuff out subscribe all that sort of stuff the Nintendo Switch has made it out into the wild mark uh, no embargoes have lifted on the, the final product or its launch games but we got a, a look in at one game in particular last week because Nintendo were doing a road show where they were going around to different gaming outlets, uh, IGN, GameSpot, Giant Bomb, the, the usual heavy hitters. Um, and they were kind of uh, letting them play 1-2 Switch while being supervised by members of Team Nintendo. And normally that would seem like a real kind of, that's weird, there's just going to be people standing there making sure that you don't, you know figure out the secrets of this box or show everyone the UI when you're not supposed to yet. Um, but the videos, I don't know if you've seen any of them, the videos actually turned out to be quite fun. They actually sent out fun people um, who turned out to be good spokespeople for kind of explaining, you know, what you're supposed to do and having a bit of fun. And instead of turning it into, we're going to watch you play the Switch and order you around, it turned into, no, you get two of your guys and you'll challenge us and we'll all play and we'll actually make it into a fun live stream. The uh, the Giant Bomb stream in particular was fucking hilariously funny. Um, but the reason I want to bring this whole thing up is that people on podcasts this week and people in written articles have been talking now about 1-2-Switch because they can talk about it because they have played it in, in preview and on live streams and things like that. And people are pleasantly surprised, which is... Uh, I'm happy about that. Uh, it seems to, the the indication I'm getting is that it seems to fit into that niche of, not quite as good at, but in the, the neighborhood of Jackbox games. Mm-hmm. In as much as there's a set amount of content, when you're playing it all through, it's fun. It's fun to crack out something like 1-2-Switch when there's a bunch of people around and maybe there's a few beers around. Uh, it's not something you're going to play by yourself. It's obviously, it's not something you're going to play all the time. Um, but every so often it's going to be fun to dust off and uh, have a sandwich eating contest or try to be the quickest draw with a pistol and things like that. Also well, pleasantly surprised to see that I think there's a total of, because we were worried that for the price point of $50, because it's come down from being a full price game, it's come down to 50 yeah. that uh, it looked like there was only a handful of games in it. But it turns out I think it's there's 28 different games on it. Um, could be more. I'm, I'm, I heard 28 from someone though. So uh, we'll go with 20. Well, this is good now. because everyone's banging on that there's only two games for the Switch at launch. There's like 30 games now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you got your, it's cool because you've got your fun one that the family can play on launch day. You've got sure. your one that you're going to play by yourself and never leave your room, Zelda. Um, the one that I'm, I'm really hoping comes out better than some people were saying it was when it was still rough around the edges in, in, in a demo is Bomberman. I'm hoping that the multiplayer on Bomberman is good, like old Bomberman. Can we just not talk about the Switch till Christmas now? No, because we're going to have um, Puyo Puyo Tetris coming soon, and I'm psyched for yeah, that. Yeah, and I'm not going to be able to have anything to say about any we're of gonna this. We're going to be able to play Puyo Puyo Tetris. No, you're going to get to play it. I'm going to get to be sad. And Oh no, I have a, I, I've, I've ordered the Pro Remote. Oh, you have two controllers? Yes. You madman. Yeah. Well, no, I was... 
I was never going to play with the Joy-Con with Zelda. There's not a chance. There's not a chance. That's a fair point. That's why I bought the I bought the Pro Controller for the Wii U just for Wind Waker. Okay. I was like, fair. fuck this noise. Oh, I used the, the tablet for Wind Waker. See, I don't like playing with the tablet. I don't like I don't like playing the tablet. At all. In fact, I would say I probably spent about a good eighty percent of my time with the Wii U playing through the tablet. Yeah, the only thing I played with the tablet where I was like, oh, this is cool that I'm using the tablet. Um, I liked it for um Smash Brothers sometimes. Because I could just look at the screen mm. um, playing Smash Brothers, and I liked it for Mario Maker, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, but other than that, I was just like, I'd prefer just to have a standard controller rather than have this thing that needs to be recharged after four hours. Because yeah. the Pro Controller for um, the Wii U lasts a ridiculous amount of time. It's awesome. Um, but it's yeah, amazing it's... how they can get that so wrong and so right when it comes to peripheral controllers. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, glad to see 1 2 Switch isn't uh, a disaster. Uh, we will be playing that. At some point, because uh, I have I uh, that's the other game I got at launch because it's kind of a paltry field. But uh, we do have games nights in the house, so if True. a party game comes out on a major console, I'm probably buying it so that we can have the lols. I mean, I was surprised that we didn't get like remastered versions of Arkham City and Mass Effect Three. <laughs> uh, Binding of Isaac Afterbirth Plus, a game that uh, young Mark Robinson here is a big fan of. It's missed launch day for Switch, but it will still be out within the first few weeks. It's going to be out at some time in March. And the cool thing that I, I put in this story for is that it's going to come with a 20-page instruction manual. It kind of in- fucking needs it. Do you remember instruction manuals, Mark? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how much time you spent with Binding of Isaac. Um, uh, I, none. I remember... Well, I've watched you play it a lot. I remember playing that game when it first came out back in 2010, I think mm-hmm. I want to say. And it had uh, like maybe like 50 odd items, which has now gone up to like 500 items and trinkets and God knows what else. Yeah. And it's like you, you have to have, uh, when you play the game, you need to have a wiki page open just to be like, what, what the fuck does this item do? Uh, so a, a, a manual, like it's not necessary because you can still just use a wiki, but like that's a really cool feature, certainly for a physical copy of this game. For, for the kids nowadays, kids, kids, sit around the campfire here. Let me tell you about instruction manuals. Mm. Instruction manuals back in the day, Mark, were nearly as good as the game themselves. Yeah. Getting them. Do you know what really the, fucks you me You know the, the car journey home after you've got yeah, the new yeah. N64 game where you're reading the instruction manuals, you know, because the first three or four pages inside in that instruction manual are just nonsense that some bloke in the rare offices wrote about why you should care about Cranky Kong. Yeah. Do you know what really fucks me off? Uh, when you get an album and the, the booklet in between has like a page and has nothing in it at all. Yeah. When I buy an album, I want lyrics. I want yeah. like... Do you know always been great for that? I praise, I praise him a lot when we talk about music. Jack White. Yeah. There's a man who puts a lot of thought into the packaging of his, of his music. Like... Um, uh, I like I like Kid A by Radiohead, mm-hmm. but the booklet for that, which is two pages of these shit-looking mountains, that can fuck off. <laughs> the uh, the white stripes I have it here somewhere. The DVD for uh, Live Under Blackpool Lights, um, it comes with a, a basically a small novel about each fucking song. Good, <laughs> it's great. So, so fucking and shit. And like the original version of when they recorded this song was recorded here, and it was produced Absolutely. by this person. So, like it's fascinating. Absolutely. 
Um, but yeah, uh, instruction manuals are pretty great. Uh, I'm a big fan of them. I can understand why they went by the wayside because there's a lot of paper. Uh, for I imagine there's a sizable percentage of people who buy games that never look at the instruction manual. No, again, much like a man doing DIY. Again, a this is a game that could use that, and b I mean, it's Edmund McMillan uh, who is you know as as kind of ingrained in classic video games as you can get. So mm. it's it's a perfect watch indie game. The movie. <sighs> we should do that in the book club. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, it's a cool little deal, and it comes with uh, some stickers as well, some Isaac stickers. Um, so that's cool. Like in, in the era of digital games, you kind of got to come up with cool stuff to have in your physical copy. Um, one of the most pleasant surprises in a long time was when Doom last year came with a proper UAC manual and uh, a UAC iron-on patch for your jacket and a bunch of stickers and stuff like that. So that's that's pretty cool. Uh, moving on. So, uh, Nintendo haven't give up, given up on Amiibo because they, the kind of the, the the market on Amiibos has kind of plateaued. They're not making as much money as they were at first, especially since they've started re-releasing and re-releasing. Um, the scarcity is kind of not an issue anymore, so the demand has gone down a bit. But uh, Breath of the Wild will see the first uh, Amiibo that are designed for a Switch game. I know it's coming out on Wii U as well, but bear with me. So there are, I think, three a different uh, amiibo coming out with uh, Breath of the Wild. And they're doing a pretty cool thing with it. Um, so if you have any or all of the amiibo and you touch it to the NFC reader on your Switch or on your Wii U, you unlock special items in the game. But the the thing that's cool about this... Um, so they're proper weapons. And the thing I like about this uh, is that whereas in other games you're incentivized to get the thing where you can get exclusive content that nobody else can get and then people are sitting around going oh, fuck like I I didn't want to pre-order I didn't want to get the thing why must I lose out on something that other people are enjoying in the game um, this is it allows you the option of coming across weapons none of these exclusive uh, amiibo weapons are actually exclusive they are all attainable inside the game they're just uh, late game or expensive in whatever the equivalent of the store is in it um, it just gives you kind of a little bit of an edge at first which makes sense to me because the there are two people there are two types of people who seem to collect amiibos and it's uh, adults who just want them as things to put on a shelf because they look nice that, that would be me the amiibo I have they're just there for a shelf I don't ever want to use them for anything because why the fuck uh, and then the other people are kids who could probably benefit from the game being made a little bit easier by them having some hardy weapons to get them through a game because Zelda is a tough game for a small child yeah <laughs> um, so I actually think that's a that's a, a unique way to tackle um, because you have to get something for having the amiibo so why not something like that yeah like I'm I'm not overly fussed about the amiibos but like it's... No, I think they, they, again, Amiibo, they look pretty, um, but they're they not necessary. No, but I think that Nintendo have done a good job of implementing them in a way that they don't feel necessary yeah. for games. They're not Skylanders. They're not Skylanders. But, I mean, the, the Skylanders is built with that in mind, so mm-hmm. I, I don't use... But that's the, that's the very comparison. extreme of the spectrum. Sure, but that is just that life. game, yeah. you know. 
Um, but I think Nintendo has done a pretty good job. And obviously, it's a game by game cases of what rewards and what incentives you get. I will say this, like in terms of their actual like build quality and how the amiibos look, they're great. Yeah, you know, and they're real solid. Yeah. yeah. The first gen, they fucked up a couple of them because they had those like platforms. You know, the one that like where it looks like Link is just there's a stream of piss coming down from Link. Because <laughs> this like translucent yellow yeah, bar that's yeah. attaching them to the platform. But they got clever. Like some of the ones I love, the Mega Man one and the Little Mac one that I got for uh, from the Smash Brothers series. The pixelated Mario one that came with Mario Maker is gorgeous. There's a pixelated Zelda uh, Link one that came with something. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Fucking, they're really well built for the. They're fifteen quid. They're really well built for how much you're paying for them. Uh, moving on. Games with Gold is going to have another banner month in March. Uh, they've really been knocking it out of the park the last year or so since this. Uh, it's been about a year since backwards compatibility, hasn't it? Year and a half, maybe. Yeah, it's not this E three. It was the previous E three. So you have the Xbox. You tell me. Yeah, yeah, about a year and a half. Um, so this month we're going to get the two Xbox One games for the first half of the month we got Layers of Fear second half of the month Evolve so I'll finally get to play Evolve without paying money for it <laughs> uh, also it's probably the one remaining thing you can do to try and make sure there's people playing it is give it away for well, free yeah because I, I think they've all but given up yeah. uh, support on that game now yeah, pretty much huh. uh, the Xbox 360 games for the month uh, that will be available on both Xbox 360 and Xbox One through backwards compatibility are Heavy Weapon and Borderlands 2, which is a good game. Yeah, I, I already own the Handsome Jack collection. So. Yeah, I I have tried to finish Borderlands 2 on a couple of occasions, and it is a bit of a grind fest. Brian loves it, would you believe? Yeah. But he loves the grind. It does have some fun characters. So. Yeah, he loves it's, the grind. Grind and looting. Are, yeah. He read Joneses for that kind of like, stuff. Like, between that and Diablo, I guess he's sorted. Yeah. yeah. Um... PS, PlayStation, like, they really, by their insistence on uh, pursuing with PlayStation Now, where they have to keep all the PS3 games on P- PlayStation Now, where that loses all value, they can't, they literally can't keep up with the Look, amazing stuff that's we, going on. We could do a whole hour about how that's, like, the one thing that they've really shot themselves in the foot with this mm-hmm. generation. Especially because the amount of money they paid for that cloud technology, the mm-hmm. Gaikai stuff, and that's what it's gone on. Yeah. It's a real shame. And no one, no one gives a fuck about it. Nope. I really would love, I would pay an amount of money to get numbers on how many people are yeah. subscribed to that. I am so fucking curious. I think I said that last week on the show, so I'm so fucking curious. Like, think about the person that's going to have two separate subscriptions. I couldn't know. I, so I, on the, I to the same like if it was, console now, it would have been genius if it was rolled into the if they uh, upped the cost of PS Plus by 10 euros yeah made like a tier package totally pay for it yeah, for an yeah. extra 10 quid yeah uh, anyway uh, the Humble Freedom Bundle which we talked about last week which was uh, a great bundle of games which was pay what you want uh, over 30, so $30 got you all the games but you could pay more than that it went to charities like the ACLU um it was to it was basically a statement against uh the immigration ban that we are not going to go over in this show because fucking every other form of media you <laughs> listeners have consumed over the last month has been obsessed with the aforementioned tangerine micro-limbed cretin that i said we will not refer to on this show but anyway the this was all for several awesome causes the american civil liberties union the international rescue committee doctors without borders aka medecins sans frontieres um, it raised $6.73 million. Its goal was 300 grand. 
It did all right. Overshot. It did all right. Uh, eh? That's a fantastic, heartwarming story. Yeah. Um, oh, my, and, my uh, but the thing is as well, the people who paid $30 have got hella cool stuff for it. My Twitter feed has been non-stop this week with people saying, I've got about 10 games here I already own. Here yeah. are some keys. Yeah, people giving away keys because they wanted to contribute, but they owned all the I've games. seen so many copies of Super Meat Boy coming yeah. last week. There was Super Meat Boy, the Stardew Valley <laughs> Subnautica, Day of the Tentacle, The Witness... The Witness, which, by the way, is still like 40 quid on its yeah. own on PlayStation. That That's like the key one. Because I've seen so many people, when I've been talking about The Witness over the last six months, and people have gone to me, oh, it looks really cool, but I just, uh, the price package, the price point, it's I'm not sure. Extortionate, yeah. Yeah. yeah um, it's a really well-made game, but it's a lot for a smaller it, indie title. If you're going to get it, this is the place to get it. Or, mm-hmm. well, was. Um... Switch ID signups are live. Mm. Um, so you can get your username for your Switch. Um, so if you want to get Boobabongs420 69, you can get that now, Mark Robinson. Just in advance for the day you eventually do get a Switch. Don't talk to me about character IDs because my <laughs> job entails dealing with character names and family names. And boy, I have seen them all. Yeah, smoking I... dash hella dash blunts with a Z. I have seen things, my friend. Um, so Switch has introduced from VG247. Switch introduces a new suite of Nintendo online services called uh, Nintendo Online Service. And it doesn't use the same Nintendo network ID as you've been using on 3DS or Wii U. No, it's a Nintendo account now. But it links that account to this new one. So um, if you already have a Nintendo network ID, you can sign in with that. And on the menu there, you can find where to get your Switch ID. So it is all unified now. Again, again, as someone who has to deal with accounts, uh-huh. I can't even begin to imagine the person or the people that have had to deal with this bullshit over the last mm-hmm. 10 years or so. It is all thankfully unified now, finally. The obvious problem being that it is very unlikely that that means purchases are going to carry over oh, God, from no. the Wii U. Of course not. Um... But I think uh, one of the few points I've been disagreeing with more and more stuff that I've seen on this stuff lately, but one of the, one of the things uh, Colin Moriarty of Kind of Funny uh, pointed out when we talked about the this generation of games and the digital purchases not carrying over from PS3 to PS4, Xbox 360 to Xbox One, and now Wii U to Switch, mm-hmm. is that I can say with a fair amount of certainty, this is the last generation that they will get away with this bullshit. I, I mean, because I would say the, that they haven't even gotten away with it this generation. Well, that's the thing. Because the 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 backlash against it, it's, it's happened particularly strongly with Nintendo because on top of not carrying over purchases, they've been getting you to repeat buying the same games what? for several generations. I was going to say, I really like Super Mario World. I don't need yeah. to buy it for a tenth time. But the, the backlash against them has been so great that a lot of people inside Sony and inside Microsoft have said, if, because R&D aside, because people are always trying to, in will have an R&D team working yeah. on what would be the next console, even if they're not committed to another console. No, you always think... If there stuff. is a PS5, if there is an Xbox 2, you know, um, whatever the next console generation would be, there has been acknowledgement from some people off the record that we're just, they're going to have to let purchases carry over because you have it's, to. it's not going to happen again. No. It's, people aren't going to do it. People, you know, once bitten, twice shy it's, kind of thing. Well, it's a combination of that and a combination of if, if you want to go into this potential digital future or digital future, yeah. you cannot, you will not be allowed to get away with this. Yeah, you can't you know? lock away all those games no. on, uh, because then people will have very little incentive to go to the next generation. Exactly. It's like, why go to the generation that now has only half a dozen games on it when I have a couple of hundred games locked away? 
Because anyone who buys, like, if you buy most major releases and get your PS Plus games on a couple of platforms every month, you will probably have a library of a couple of hundred games on PS4 by now. Mm-hmm. Um, because like I buy I get four games a month between PS4 and Vita and have been doing for several years add to that the amount of games I buy myself I have a lot of digital games anyway moving on thought this was a cool little one Watch Dogs 2 uh, a surprise hit of late last year um, they have been adding inside in the the patches that have been coming out for watchdogs they've been adding layer by layer without actually detailing in the patch notes that they've been doing this they've been waiting for players to find it they've been layering in a mystery quest have you seen anything about this nope okay so i'll read this from kotaku because I, I saw this today and thought this was really interesting after last week's watchdogs 2 patch players have unearthed a mystery quest hidden in the game players investigations have led them to turn over every rock and even mine the game's code to hunt more if information on something called the Shuffler. Ubisoft added patch 1.11 to prepare players for Watch Dogs 2, Watch Dogs 2 upcoming DLC release tomorrow. Uh, afterwards, Reddit, uh, our Watch Dogs mod Epic Stream Man told me, we started hearing rumblings of weird text conversations between NPCs. In-game, four teenagers who call themselves the Shuffler Hunters had apparently gone missing, local, ra local radio reported. Manic posts on the official Watchdogs 2 Tumblr confirmed players' suspicions that the mi a mystery was bubbling. The posts refer to the Shuffler, an urban legend so scary that those in the know allegedly lost their minds. Later, the post, that announced, the post announced that the Shuffler is real. Fans soon discovered the missing teenagers went AWOL while investigating the Shuffler. On February 15th, they found four instances of red, hellish-looking graffiti in Watch Dogs 2's Oakland area. Around that graffiti, players heard strange noises, and when viewed through their phones, the locations revealed clues to the lost teenager's story. Right now, players are at a standstill, waiting for Ubi to drop another hint. Regardless, the surprise quest has reinvigorated the game's fan community, which uniformly seems to love a good mystery. I don't think anyone really expected something like this, Watch Dogs 2 Discord member Team, uh, Teal Summer Nights told me. People are listening to the game's radio stations, checking out every nook and cranny of virtual San Francisco. Some folks have even been digging through the code. The bulk of the Shuffler's quest exists in-game, so it's not true ARG, but players are treating it like one, already dismantling the game's in-style uh, of its hacker protagonists. So that's a pretty cool little thing to put in um, that's kind of in the same vein as the, you know, GTA for years has put in a lot of things uh, alluding to that you might be able to find Sasquatch. Yeah. Uh, even though you never have been able to <laughs> and uh, driven people mad with that. Uh, or there's, uh, have you ever read about the, you should check it out, the, the alien stuff in GTA 5 with the runes? Oh yeah, that's that's a, that's a trippy bunch of bullshit. Let me tell you, you look that up sometime for yourself. Um, yeah, pretty cool, pretty cool. A uh, little weird deal there. Finally, what what would an episode of Link the Cast be without a word from Konami? Not quite Konami Corner because this doesn't directly deal with Konami, but uh, a much loved Konami property. We have uh, news on the Metal Gear Solid film. Which has been, I think, rumoured for as long as Metal Gear Solid games have been around. Um, but it is in the hands now and moving rapidly forward into production under the, the director of uh, Kong Skull Island, 
uh, who is uh, Jordan Vote Roberts. So, fans worried a Metal Gear Solid movie may be as poor as other game-to-film adaptations should take comfort in the words and passion of director Jordan Vogt-Roberts. Jordan uh, Vogt-Roberts, who's finishing up work on Kong Skull Island, says he's going to fight to make a real Metal Gear movie. That is a property I will fight tooth and nail to make sure is done properly because it's so easy to screw it up and it's so easy for a studio to try and make it into uh, G.I. Joe or try and make it into Mission Impossible or try to make it into something that's not, said Vogt-Roberts to Collider. Highlighting the Metal Gear franchise's ability to both play it straight and comedic and swing from violence to cuddling dogs within minutes, Vote Robert said he could work with any budget, indie or blockbuster, I would disagree with that particular sentiment, <laughs> and that it might be stripped back affair similar to recent acclaimed superhero movies. So he's comparing it to like Deadpool or Logan, which is kind of... Um, like, in Logan's case, anyway, a pared-down story that uh, doesn't have the, the frills of big, kind of, um, say, an Avengers movie or a big X-Men movie. Yeah. Uh, or something like Deadpool as well, which is very fan servicey. Hmm. I think that's saying all the right things, and I think the, the one thing the Metal Gear Solid, the hypothetical movie, would really need, and I think any video game movie would really need if it was going to succeed, is a director who isn't necessarily just a Hollywood director that has been given this script I think it needs to be somebody who understands the source material and is a fan of it the the, the fascinating thing here is what would if at all the relationship be between the director Konami and Hideo and Hideo you know yeah. because you would have to think that Hideo would have to be like at least a consultant no not, not even a consultant but you would have to think that the director would want to go to Hideo yeah. to say here but look the, I'm doing this the thing about it me. the thing about it though is because it would be the director or the writer consulting with Hideo I don't think Konami would have a problem with that once Konami their main problem is they didn't want to keep paying Hideo Kojima loads of money <laughs> well I suppose <laughs> and they're not doing that anymore but I wonder with like at this point would Kojima just say fuck off like I mean no you know, Metal Gear is still his baby I think if I, I, I think he would rather be consulted rather than let Konami do what let really? them do. Like it's a film. Like it's not the games. Yeah, this is a guy who has been designing games he, like has he wanted to be a Hollywood director yeah, his entire I, life. I, I get that. That's fair enough. I don't know. I can and sti- still to this day says he wants to be involved in movies. I could still just see him saying fuck off to this. No, if he had to work directly with Konami, yes he would. But yeah. if it's working on a Metal Gear movie, like it must to this day still break that man's heart that he had to work, walk away from a universe that he spent a couple of decades building in the way he did he yes. was done with us I could also see him while. being glad to get the fuck out of that company yeah no get the fuck out of the company but not necessarily away from the no, franchise no, 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 the no, no, two no, no, things are well, remember, exclusive remember as well case. like the Metal Gear Solid was meant to be just it, I feel the standalone game and like the more and obviously, well, no, because the end of that game teases Metal Gear Solid 2. Because I it does the Mr. President thing. I still think that a lot he had, of what goes on was yeah, kind of forced to make yeah, those sequels. Well, and, I mean, that will happen because, yeah. obviously, the he original He didn't have so all successful. five core Metal Gear Solid games no, planned out I, from the first I'm one. I'm not talking about all five. I'm talking, yeah. like, one by one. It's like, okay, well, this was really good. We should well, make another one. I, yeah, I think what he... And this is, again, putting words in Hideo Kojima's mouth. But I think, just based on things he said over the years... I don't think it's ever that he wanted to completely be done away with Metal Gear Solid, but I think he would have appreciated getting to do one Metal Gear Solid game and then one different game and mm. then come back to Metal Gear Solid and then away. But Konami just wanted him to keep doing Metal Gear Solid. Um, and I think maybe 
Silent Hills was that kind of them giving him that project was kind of a fine just shut the fuck up and finish Metal Gear Solid 5 and we'll let you do this um but yeah um Metal Gear Solid is one of the more uh blatantly cinematic video game franchises I think with me personally is that that's a game that is so cinematic it's like the concept of doing a Last of Us film what's the what's the point the game is so cinematic as it is, yeah. you know. I would rather see, and we're going to be talking about it. I'd rather see a fucking Tetris film. Like, what the fuck is that going to look like? I don't want to see the Tetris film. I, I don't really want to see, want to see that. What I do want to see is because uh, retrospectively, people have actually come back to it and said it was rather good. Is I want to see that Warcraft film now. Duncan Jones is one. Um, the people have actually said is pretty good and it's Mark Kermode has actually said it's very good and it's it's a crying shame that no one went to see it do, do you know it's a really really bad video game adaptation film every single Besides one of them, them but but like particularly bad is Dungeons and Dragons I haven't seen that oh, oh my uh, word Super Mario is still the standard bearer for me uh, but you know what in a bad way but you know what I can at least enjoy that film not having that not having that anyway that's the news that good. It's time to move on to the book club. And this week we are talking one game, one documentary. We are talking Tetris and Ecstasy of Order, the Tetris Masters. Tetris is a tile-matching puzzle video game originally designed and programmed by Russian game designer Alexei Payetnov. Is that how I said that right? Payetnov? Payetnov? We'll assume he's a silent J. It was released on June 6, 1984, while he was working for the Dorotnitsyan Computing Center of the Academy of Science of the USSR in Moscow. He derived its name from the Greek numerical prefix Tetra. All of the game's pieces contain four segments, and tennis, Payetnov's favorite sport. Tetris was the first entertainment software to be exported from the USSR to the US, where it was published by the Spectrum Holobytes for the Commodore 64 and IBM PC. The Tetris game is a popular use of Tetraminos, the four-element spe- special case of Polominios. Polominios have been used in popular puzzles since at least 1907, and the name was given by the mathematician Solomon W. Gollum. In 1953, however, even the, the urination of Pentominios is dated to antiquity. Cool, there's a lot of big words there for me. <laughs> You're probably at several points during that paragraph going, why didn't I read this before we started <laughs> recording? Uh, while versions of Tetris were sold for a range of 1980s home computer platforms as well as arcades, it was the hugely successful handheld version of the Game Boy launched in 1989 that established the game as one of the most popular ever. Electronic Gaming Monthly's 100th issue had Tetris in the first place as the greatest game of all time. In 2007, Tetris came in second place of IGN's 100 Greatest Video Games of All Time. And in January 2010, it was announced that the Tetris franchise had sold more than 170 million copies, approximately 70 million physical copies and over 100 million copies for cell phones, making it the best-selling uh, paid downloaded game of all time. 
Now on top of Tetris, we watched a little little film slash documentary. Yeah. Dave Ryan, talk to me. So this documentary is called Ecstasy of Order, The Tetris Masters. It was a 2011 American documentary film that follows the lives of several gamers from around the country as they prepare to compete in the 2010 Classic Tetris World Championships held in Los Angeles, California. It recounts the development and rise of Tetris as one of the most played video games of all time, the role it had in shaping the lives of the gamers at Chronicles, the mystery surrounding the whereabouts of, an Inte- of former Nintendo World Champion Thor Ackerlund, and the conception and execution of the first ever Cla- Classic Tetris World Championship by gaming enthusiast Robin Mahara. Um, yeah, so... If we talk for a minute before we get into the film about um, exposure exposure to Tetris, have you always been a big Tetris fan? Is it one? Is it a game that you kind of developed more of a love for uh, the older you got, or was it something you obsessively played younger, or what? What was it for you? Um, so I played a, a lot of it on the Game Boy back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, Tetris is one of those games, certainly as I was getting into to game design, and it's one of the games that we spoke about uh, i think in one of the first classes i had when i was at university and my lecturer he he had this kind of little thing he said where you think of the different forms of media and how you consume them and you have music that you listen to books that you read films that you watch and games that you play and when you think about play in its purest form I mean, you could maybe say pong or asteroids but i really think that tetris is that kind of purest rawest form of a game that you play you know it takes away everything else there's no need for reading listening uh obviously you need to watch um but like when you think about what a video game is at its purest form i think to this day the standard bearer for that is tetris Mm. would you agree yeah it like I, I said in the intro to the show, maddening simplicity is the best way to put mm-hmm. the game. So the the concept of um, just having to complete lines with these tetramino shapes. Um, you had alluded to the tetramino coming from the, the Greek word tetra, meaning four. So they're shapes that are made out of different variations and positioning of four squares. Um, there are several different variations. At any moment, there is a one in seven chance of you getting uh, a particular shape coming down. And your goal is to complete lines in it. Uh, If you complete four lines at one time, that is called a Tetris. Mm -hmm. Um, And the for every level, you ratchet up uh, kind of your your, your points. So it goes up and then the speed gradually increases as well. To the point where you get to, I believe it's the level 29, which is considered the kill screen. That is uh, where the the Tetraminos are moving so fast that it's considered impossible to complete, as yeah. they talk about in the documentary. Um, it is a game that is infinitely replayable. It never gets boring. Contrary to what a lot of people have tried to do, uh, I think it, and it harkens back to your idea of uh, the, the, the rawest form of this addictive play style, is that... I don't think you ever needed to improve on it, to be honest. No, no. We've seen a lot of different people, a lot of different companies, or a lot of different designers try to take different spins on Tetris. I think the closest, and we've already mentioned it on the show, I think the closest you've come to creating um, a cool spin on Tetris is something like Puyo Puyo Tetris. Yeah, yeah. Which still, the actual Tetris part of that is still just Tetris. But things I'm thinking of that try to take uh, spins on it that 
aren't I don't necessarily drive with are things like something that's going to pop up in our uh, retro corner sixty four you eventually of like Tetrisphere. There's Tetrisphere and there's Wet Tricks. Yeah, yeah. which is also a really fucking mm. unusual one. Um, yeah, I think it was from the like the Game Boy days, the NES days. I think this was the perfect game. Uh, just as it was. Um, it's a game that the some of the best kind of games for for in gameplay terms are the ones where you can play it for 30 seconds and immediately know what it is you're supposed to do and then be hooked um my grandmother who is nearly 70 years old uh is a massive tetris fan still has her original game boy and her copy of tetris hidden behind the microwave at home so that she can play (laughs) at night while she's watching the news it's incredible. Um, she loves a bit of Tetris. It's like the two things, the two video games that my grandmother has ever played in her life, Tetris and Dr. Kawashima's Brain Training. Strong. Loves both of those. I think a uh, friend of the show, Jack Lazel, his dad, I know his dad played a lot of Pokemon Pinball. Oh, this is going to be turned around and saying, Jack's dad invented Tetris. He probably <laughs> did. I think it's Pokemon Pinball and, and Tetris. Um, the, what I think about Tetris is you think about a lot of mobile games and touchscreen games in the modern era and how they are designed I mean you take Super Mario Run for example they are designed with having one button yeah. you know the the screen itself to, to press down to do whatever the game wants you to do mm-hmm. and Tetris has two buttons it has your d-pad and it has the a button to change the the rotation of the shapes yeah. and that's it and you can do anything with that and we've seen bells and whistles and different spins and takes on tetris over the years but you can still go back to that game boy version or the nes version and it didn't need anything more added um and also when you think about it as well like you think about when you think about the game boy and you think about games for the game boy like there is no more i feel kind of symbolic relationship than tetris and the game boy you know you think of the nes you think super mario super mario brothers you think of the game boy you think of tetris and like the history of tetris and its creation in the ussr and how it kind of got from the soviet union into the hands of nintendo Mm. like that whole thing um is, is super super fascinating um and it's just it's one of those games where like there's so much beyond the game to talk about or to think about yeah. as well as the actual game itself but again because just the, the kind of pure simplicity of the game mm. um you said kind of before we started recording it's like how do you spend 20 minutes talking about this game and it's like without getting tedious without that's, getting that's, tedious that's, that's, that's my, that's that's the that's the my caveat there yeah it's the caveat. Style caveat and so you part of the reason why we're not gonna spend 20 minutes talking about it is a that because we're incredibly tedious <laughs> be that and see, because also we had a look at a documentary, film slash documentary, yeah. uh, that spoke about Tetris. So one of the cool stats that they hit you with straight off in Ecstasy of Order is that it is estimated that two of every three Americans has played Tetris. That's a f- pretty mental stat. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's how big this game is. For people who think this is just kind of uh, an old game, that the mechanics of which have hung around and you can't really grasp the the enormous nature of Tetris uh, that 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 pretty much sets the tone for the whole thing and it's kind of wild that it follows this guy uh, what's his name again sorry I've lost his name here um, Robin Mahara who himself was a professional gamer back in the day 
uh, and competed at the Nintendo World Championships, the famous uh, legendary Nintendo World Championships, of which there is amazingly cringy footage in this documentary. Oh, yeah. Um, the fact that of all the games, so we've talked about in um, King of Kong, uh, competitive gaming has been a thing almost as long as there has been arcade gaming. Um, going back to just before the Nintendo World Championships and Nintendo World Championships themselves, it is amazing that before this documentary, before these this Robin Mahara guy, there was no real concerted attempt to make a proper Tetris World Championship to find who the World Champion of Tetris was. We have World Champions of Cubert, of Donkey Kong, of Pac-Man, all this sort of stuff. But Tetris, which seems like in some ways the most perfect kind of skill uh, skilled gaming competition of that ilk you could think of um, that it, it wasn't a thing um, so you, like my description that I read here we, we have a couple of stories going on so Robin Mahara who was a guy who had been defeated in the Nintendo World Championship trying to become the, the winner in the Tetris um, his uh, journey to try and track down uh, legendary people who were great at Tetris from back when he was in the Nintendo World Championships to track down people using Twin Galaxies our, our uh, friend of the show Walter Day <laughs> and Twin Galaxies <laughs> using the official kind of certified scoreboard for Tetris to try and track all those people down and put together some sort of championship where people would compete and they would finally decide who is the best in the world at Tetris then we also have the story of this guy Thor Ackerland who was the kind of uh the uh, Enigma, who was considered the greatest Tetris player of all time back in the year of the Nintendo World Championships, who you often hear about having developed this uh, technique, this crazy technique, uh, which is something that they, I think King of Kong doesn't really talk about. It talks about how like the predictability of events in the game, but it doesn't really talk about the specifics of your actual motor skills in the game. I think that's mainly because, like, Tetris is... Because of the, the kind of RNG nature of Tetris, mm. like, you... It's more talking about the kind of skills that you mm. can use in Tetris to so, overcome the game. So Thor had this thing that they call it the vibrating thumb, which mm. is a incredibly filthy thing to say <laughs> out loud now that I've said it. But you see it, and it, it shows in the footage that instead of, like, tapping left or right on the D-pad to change the shape, um, he was able to vibrate his thumb over the D-pad really quickly that gets it to move much quicker than it, it would otherwise. It's like a hummingbird. Yeah, there's also the technique of apparently there's a... I think it was a third of a second in between when one shape lands and the next shape comes from the top of the screen where you actually are in control of the shape, but it's not visible yet. Yeah. Um, and they talk about how getting good at that third of a second positioning yeah. is what will get you to survive on Yeah, on like using levels. peripheral vision. Yeah, and, and Thor was the guy who was an expert at that. And there's also a guy who, you know, he, he jokes that because he's cross-eyed, he can look with one eye directly at what's happening and with one eye on what the next shape is. And that gives him an advantage. And he... <laughs> prove that he did quite an advantage <laughs> in this documentary but uh, Thor was a guy who was the best in the world and you would have thought because he was best in the world he would have stuck around like one of these Billy Mitchell figures disappeared no one heard from him a good half of this movie is them trying to find Thor track down Thor then persuade Thor to kind of come out of uh, retirement to come back to this 
and uh, you made the the assertion that when Thor finally shows up, he is the most normal person we have seen in a documentary like this because most of the God bless the people that are in King of Kong and in this documentary, but there are some fucking weird people in the world between your Billy Mitchells, between your Phil Fishers. Everyone I've seen so far in a game documentary has been some form of mental, whether albeit good or bad. Mm. And then this lad who comes along, who, by the way, if you hadn't noticed, his name is fucking Thor. Yeah. He's as... And the way they talk about it, I said this to you, the way they talk about him at points, you would think actual Thor was going to show up. Yeah. The Norse god of thunder, the yeah. way they were speaking of him and the reverent tones they were using. And he comes comes into to, to this film and immediately like tries to get as far away from a film camera as, yeah. as you could possibly get. He's just Which... a normal, shy... He looks like a da. Yeah. 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 Uh, he's just a normal guy and there's a kind of a sad tint to it as well because you, you find out that he'd, he'd been in a terrible accident. They don't really go into the details, but it affected his motor skills mm-hmm. somehow. Um, and it's uh, his kind of personal arc in the film is, you know, can he, despite having been in this accident, having affected his motor skills and having basically stepped away from the game at a high level for so long, can he come back and be the Thor of old? Um, then you've also got the, the yeah the story of just the addictiveness of Tetris and how it's caught on and kind of some parts about how people have, like I, I alluded to earlier on, like tried to improve on Tetris, but why yeah (laughs) because it's so perfect as is uh they argue in this whereas i think both of us have said before you've said it on here and i said it off air to you that i we both prefer the game boy version of tetris just Mm -hmm. for because that was the version we were raised on and they argue for various reasons and far be it from me because i'm not a competitive master of tetris they believe nes tetris to be the purest form of tetris for whatever reason um one of the wild uh ones is they got a guy who's one of the only 13 people in history to become what is called tetris grandmaster and the way you become this was the bit that mark's eyes started bugging out on the chair beside me when this happened i've seen this documentary before we watched it uh yesterday and uh there is a version of tetris i can't remember what version of tetris is it just like a japanese version or something i can't there's some like tetris Blah, 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 blah. At the end, is it not it, just Tetris Grandmaster? Or? No, the, that's the title you get at the end of it. I can't remember okay. what the actual. I don't want to say it for sure, just in case I'm wrong. But it's not in the 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 synopsis here on Wikipedia for it. Um. But over the credits of that, there is a, you get to play a game of Invisible Tetris. Yeah, it's just called Tetris the Grandmaster. Tetris the Grandmaster is it? So yeah. if you can survive that credit sequence for is it thirty seconds? Uh, yes. If you can play, and it's it's going pretty fast. If you can play Invisible Tetris successfully for um, thirty seconds, you become a grandmaster. And there's only thirteen people who have ever been able to prove that they did it, or at least as of the time of that documentary, there's only thirteen of them, which is crazy. And we watched them do it as well, which yeah. was fucking mental. That that's on the three sixty, by the way. Hmm. That's on the the Xbox three sixty, by the way. Not happening. <laughs> um. Another thing that was that was um, uh, really cool about this documentary. Um, oh, I've lost my train of thought. Um, you talk about something for a second. <laughs> I well, had one there for a sec. Well, coming back into oh, I, f- I remember now. Coming back into to Tetris itself for a second, I think it's uh, would it be fair to say that it's the game where the developer 
has like made the least amount of money for the most successful game. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but he's still very proud of it. Oh, I mean, yeah. why wouldn't you be? He's not. Well, he's not. He doesn't come across because he is interviewed a little bit at the start of the film, like over Skype. It's I was surprised that he wasn't in this more. Gulag. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there's again going back to the kind of fascinating history. But you know, like, basically, the USSR owned the rights to this game yeah. because that's communism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. The Tetris company, that was the name of the company, took over the rights in 1996. And so at that point, uh, Paydenov started actually making some sort of royalties out of this game. Uh, but that's crazy to think that a game had been out since 1987, 88? Yeah. Yeah. Like that. um, that's seven, eight years of not making any money off of... Of, of Tetris, which, you know, like, sold more fucking Game Boys than anything else. Save the Soviet Union. Maybe. Maybe. Um, and I think that gets lost in history a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and I think is a, is a great shame. Um, but continuing on with yeah, the One film. of the things that's cool that is a recurring theme throughout the film is the idea of droughts, which you don't really think of. So there's a... A strategy to beating to not to beating Tetris, but to playing Tetris very well. Surviving Tetris is that you create, you create what's called a well uh, on the right hand side, uh, just a one square wide gap, so that when you get the four bar, the the long four square bar, um, that you can slide that down into the well and you get a Tetris. You clear four lines for the maximum amount of points. Um, and they talk about because it's a one in seven chance because of the RNG elements. Um, you can go a while sometimes without getting one of those and there are a couple of stages in the film where it's amazing that when this is the strategy and you'll see most players will use this strategy because it is the most solid strategy to trying to get really good at Tetris so some of the moves they're having to pull out if they come across a drought of about 30-40 pieces coming out and none of them are the 4 bar they need uh, it gets crazy um, it, it just goes to show some of the, the quick thinking that's going on in there um, kind of terrifies me, if I'm honest. Um, but if we're to start... Uh... Well, I was going to point out, I've, I think I see why uh, that the people of this film classify NES as maybe the, the kind of purest version of Tetris. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is because of the wall kick ability. Um, so in the NES version, for example, if a Z piece is vertically aligned and falling touching the left wall, the player cannot rotate that rotate that piece, uh, giving the impression that the rotate buttons are locked. So in that situation, the player has to move the piece one position to the right before actually rotating it. Huh. Okay. So I think that might have something to do with it, because yeah. you know you can kind of clip uh, pieces through through the wall, yeah. and so this makes you have to have that extra kind of step in mind about what pieces you can put against the wall and where to rotate them. Of course, yeah. Uh, there's also a uh, some fascinating um, philosophy around uh, questions like, would it be possible to play Tetris forever? Um, and this, uh, the kind of philosophy here is like, you know, if if it was possible, could you play it forever? Um, but it wouldn't be, it, it, it's not possible because on the unlikely chance that you were to only get the S and Z's uh, domino, uh, dominoes, uh, tetraminoes, uh, eventually they would create gaps in the the construction of your yeah. well or whatever. Uh, yeah, it's it's 
there's so much to this game for what is such a, a, a simple, simple concept yeah. um, that I feel like I probably should do some more reading after this. And I, you know, actually, I think I should play some Tetris. And one of the best things on the Wikipedia page, uh, there is a person playing Tetris on a fifth generation iPod. <laughs> because when I think about how I want to play Tetris, yeah. I want to do it with a fucking will. Yeah, it's uh, it's safe to say that. Uh, y- you will not find it hard to get a version of Tetris you can play. Is is it surely the, like the most ported game? It'd have to be up there with like Pac-Man. Yeah, that'd be worth looking into. There are even books you can get on it. I know. Um, yeah. There's uh, the Tetris by Box Brown. There's the Tetris Effect by Dan Ackerman. Um, the classic NES Tetris Masters. There's there's several books about it. Like it's very, again, I th- I think a lot of people are fascinated by a game that is so simple and so complex all at once. Um, yeah, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. Um, give us uh, an elevator pitch for Tetris, my friend. Tetris is when you say video game the word Tetris is synonymous with that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not synonymous with a trilogy of films based on Tetris, but hey, that that's to come in the future. God help There's us all. A book club. Yeah. Mm. If you've ever played a video game before and you haven't played Tetris, it's like, it's a thing that you probably should do at some point. I, there's really no excuse. There's so many versions of the game at this point. Um, it's a game that I would argue most developers that have ever either conceived of making a video game or have made a video game have used Tetris as inspiration on how to get the most out of the least, you know, to make to take a very simple core mechanic and how you can expand on that for a game. Mm-hmm. Um and I just, I think that the story behind the game is fascinating. Um, and even now, like from a game that was released in 1987 or whenever, it is as rewarding and as challenging and as tactical and as taxing on the brain as it was then, as it is now. And, uh, you know, that is truly, is truly one of those games that will stand the test of time. Absolutely. So we have one uh, remaining bit of business, and that is to talk about what is up next week. And um, I was tempted to do one thing, but I've made a mid-course correction in my head, so we're going to do something else for next week, because the thing I had in mind was kind of old as well. So we're going to change it up, and uh, we're going to move forward um, a decade or so, and uh, we're going to talk about a little game. Might have heard of it, Mark. Might have heard of it. Um, To say... To use the word influential is uh, putting it mildly. Uh, on next week's show, we're going to talk about Half-Life. Ooh! So, uh, look forward to that one on Link to the Cast, episode 56. Yeah. Uh, that is going to do it for Link to the Cast for this week. Um, linktothecast.eu is the website where you can uh, catch up on everything. Uh, social media, facebook.com forward slash link to the cast. And at Link to the Cast on Twitter are probably the best places to interact with us and to get notifications when all our stuff goes up. Our YouTube channel posts videos uh, all week long. You can check out over there. 
uh, just search for Link to the Cast on YouTube whether you want to do that as all one word or as separate words you you do you son um, twitch.tv forward slash Link to the Cast is where live streams go up we've been doing a few of them the last few days um, and we have a weekly schedule we have content coming out all week long Monday to Friday Mondays is Mark on Mondays and Mark what is the story with Mark on Mondays you're still doing Day of the Tentacle yes uh, I am although I did this jam this week because because uh, I saw you playing it and because I needed to play some disc jam. Yeah. Not disc jam. Disc jam. Disc jam. Yeah. Yeah. What is the, the word for that when you have uh, two words connected that have a syllable? Um, ah, there's a word. Is this the time? Yeah, it is. When I've had, like, no sleep and it's ten past midnight. Tuesday is generally the day that we put up an old book club. I'm just breezing right through here. Uh, <laughs> we got some stuff to go up, Mark. Have we got a, what's gone up this week? Let's not even have that discussion. Yeah, Mark is going to remember one of these weeks that I asked this every single week, and uh, you know he'll, he'll get on that. Uh, Mark a... is going to have a week where he's not working sixty hours, and then think about doing <laughs> such a thing. Um, Wednesday is uh, linked to the cast plays. Generally speaking, this is the one where the, the two of us get together and we play something. But uh, we're doing a new series on Wednesdays now that debuted last week. And it's called Retro Corner 64. And we're going to be doing this for quite a while, Mark. It's only really now that it's starting to dawn on me the enormity of the task we have ahead of us. I know, right? We are chronologically playing every N64 game that has been released in uh, North America slash EU. Uh, so we started with Super Mario 64 last week. This week was Pilot Wings. And uh, next week is Mortal Kombat Trilogy. I believe so, yep. Yeah. Um, so we're, yeah, from 1996 on, we are playing every single game that was released, uh, for N64, where we can get our hands on an English language copy of. Sure. Um, yeah, so enjoy that. There's going to be some really good games in that, that series. As uh, so some really There's not good ones. going to be some hot garbage. Can't wait for Superman 64, friend. Uh, Thursday is the day that this podcast comes out. It's the only thing that comes out that day, so, uh, enjoy that. And Friday is Friday of Plays, and I am playing Life is Strange on that. And I, the more I play this game, the more I love it. Um, it's really cool, and got an absolutely banging soundtrack. Yeah. And it has gotten, let me tell you, you thought it was... Uh, you thought it was quite... Uh, dark and adult theme before oh i hear it, it it goes places oh it's it's gone some places yeah. this the episode that went up last week went some places very quickly starting episode three of that this week chaos theory um so keep an eye out for that um yeah that's gonna do it for link to cast this week another episode in the books i'm at dave ryan iv on twitter the man over there mark robinson's at lithium project on the tweet machine the word i was looking for was dip thong by the way oh hey of course it was <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell <laughs> we'll see you next week